Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Photographer Lauren Parks and her husband Michael moved from San Francisco to London in February 2020, one month before the UK goes into lockdown. With nowhere to go and no one to see, they decide to use the time in isolation wisely and try for a baby. This is a story about navigating pregnancy and birth away from home, about having a fast delivery following induction, and about feeling safe in the hands of the NHS. Nairi Wright, founder and midwife of Sage Fam, is also here to answer any questions. My name is Caroline Johansson, and you're listening to the podcast To Become a Mother. Welcome, Lauren. Welcome, Nairi. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much for joining us today. Lauren, you are mom to Casper, 17 months. I am. And uh, it's his birth that we'll hear about today. But before we start talking about that, I'd just like to go back a bit in time to when you were living in San Francisco with your husband, Michael, and you decided to move to London. Can you tell us a bit about this decision? So yeah, me and my husband, we met each other in San Francisco and he was living the startup life. So very, very busy. And I was living the freelance photographer life. And in general, you know, I don't know if it's the same here in the UK, but it's a very hustling type work schedule. You don't know when your next gig is going to come, you know, and I wasn't particularly interested in having a baby at all, probably because there's no real stability in that. You have to constantly be moving and searching So it didn't really make sense to me when, you know, would be a good time to even have a baby, how it would fit in, Mm -hmm. in general. And then also my husband, not my husband at that time, he was also in a similar boat. We didn't really, we weren't particularly interested in that. But then his company was acquired by a company here in London. And so we moved here to get started. And so you find yourself in London one month before lockdown. Can you tell us what happens after that? Yeah, you know, we got a flat thinking, yeah, we're going to have tons of visitors. People are going to be coming. We're going to have such a great social life of (laughs) dinner parties, all sorts of things. You know, I was going to start the creative path here and build another, you know, community. And yeah, one month we got our flat. And then one month later, we went into lockdown. Yeah, I didn't have a work visa, so I I couldn't work. And I also covid doesn't really go with photo shoots because you have to be there in person to shoot someone's photo. So you know, we had been told like there, there's never a right time to have a baby, but we thought, okay, what's the best way to use this time? Make a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so we started trying. And it happened quite quickly. It did. You know, it's funny because I don't know how, I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but in the US, they make it seem 
when you're educated on sex, they make it seem like you could get pregnant anytime, anywhere, <laughs> you know, as a sort of, I don't know, trying to prevent you from doing it probably. So, and also my, my mom passed away when I was quite young, so I never was taught about ovulation cycles. And so maybe a year before this, I started using an app to track my ovulation. So I sort of, I guess this, I was sort of thinking that this could be a possibility. So on our first uh, try, we actually locked down in Sweden, where my husband's from, <laughs> with my mother-in-law. <laughs> and um, we tried for the first time for five days during my, my window and we had a baby. So we were really lucky. It was a win straight away. Yes, it was. <laughs> and uh, Viking how- sperm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael is from Sweden. <laughs> and how um, was your pregnancy? How did you feel? So were, were you back in Sweden when you were pregnant or did you go back and forth between London and Sweden? Just went, we went back and forth. So I spent the majority of my most pregnant days. I was, I was in the UK because that's where I had, I had the healthcare and the midwives. Yeah, so you went for all your scans in the UK? Always, yeah, always in the UK. Can you describe how they went and how they were? In general, it was pretty shocking. You know, I'd never been pregnant in the US, but in the UK, just that you could have a midwife's phone number and you could text them and they would respond to you really quickly. It was like a family member. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't know how it is outside of COVID times, but I didn't have a specific midwife. So I was just kind of bounced around, but it, it didn't particularly matter. It was like they responded day and night, which was quite special. Okay, so you found out really helpful to have the midwife available and the scans went well. There were no issues on the scans. Right? No issues. I mean, the only the only different thing was was they said that Casper was a huge baby, so quite large. And to be a little bit, they were concerned. I'm not, maybe you could talk about why they might be concerned about that, but they said they wanted to keep monitoring it, but it ended up sort of flattening out and becoming more normal. But that was the only abnormality. Bigger babies are often more difficult to give birth to for obvious reasons, but also it can depend on why the baby is big. Because if the baby is big because there's gestational diabetes, it can increase the risk of stillbirth and things if it's not well managed. So it's just them trying to keep an eye that the baby was growing normally and that the pregnancy was progressing well. And sometimes scans aren't accurate, but they are all we really have to go on. So they often make clinical decisions based on scans. So did they say anything else about Aloram apart from him being being? Did you have to do any other scans? No, no extra ones. They just wanted to keep monitoring. And uh, then eventually okay. it normalized and, and he became a normal sized baby. So I think he just grew quickly at the beginning or yeah. something like that. And how were you feeling otherwise? Good. You know, I mean, the one benefit of being pregnant during COVID is there's no FOMO whatsoever because everyone is at home, <laughs> you know, not doing anything. So we were just locked up in the flat enjoying this new experience with each other. And did you miss being at home? Because I, I mean, being pregnant is such a big experience. And sometimes well, I had my family abroad as well when I was pregnant and I could, I remember missing you know, showing them how I looked and just, yeah, enjoying the experience with them. Did you have any of those feelings? I think maybe if I had the the contrast of experience of pregnancy with a lot of support and then having not the support, I could have that uh, comparison. But because of that, it was it was the first time for everything, so I didn't necessarily miss it. Yeah. But uh, I had a virtual I had a virtual baby shower uh, that okay. a friend in California threw for me, which was really awkward. But 
<laughs> but it was cool. I mean, it was, uh, it was definitely, you know, 2020 behavior, the future situation. A little bit awkward, not the same as being there in person, but at least it was something to make it feel like everyone was coming together around the world. You know, I think, yeah, sure, I missed my my sister and friends and all of that. But also I was anticipating that pregnancy would make me meet a lot of moms. And that would be like my bridge to a whole new set of friends. And during COVID, it was all online. And it's not, you don't have the chemistry that you have in person online. And so I actually, I didn't make any mom friends while I was pregnant. And that was kind of a shame. I, I didn't have any antenatal classes. I took some virtual seminars teaching me about various things to expect, but I didn't have the camaraderie with other parents. And were you worried about bars? Like what thoughts did you have? Not particularly worried, but I definitely went in there, I think a little bit overconfident thinking I could handle this. Like there would be no, because I thought I had a really high pain threshold. And so that was a really humble, which I'm sure we'll get to that part, but a really humbling experience that it's not that way <laughs> at all. It's not like you, it's not like I expected it at all. And so um, you get to your due date. What happens? So they had, you know, they had advised me that if, you know, Casper was, he kicked all the time. And then suddenly towards, as the due date was approaching, he started kicking less and less. And so the due date was on, on December 23rd. On December 22nd, he really stopped moving as much. So I decided to go to the doctor and they said, you know, your baby's fully baked. Let's get him out. And so they... They sent me home for a little while and then they, I came back and they did my first induction. And so what kind of induction was that? So I think they, they used a gel. It's artificial prostaglandins in a gel. So the idea is that it softens and ripens the cervix so that you get to the stage where the cervix is two to three centimetres open and a midwife or obstetrician can break the waters. And it's a really peculiar thing because everybody's body is different. Some women will have the absolute maximum number of applications and absolutely nothing will happen. I've also seen women have it and the baby's born within two hours. So it's very variable. But usually if it's your first baby, you can expect one or two doses of it. And maybe a few hours later, you begin to feel these really quite strong contractions. But For other women, it might take longer and then they might have a bit of a rest and then they start the procedure again. And is there any side effects or negative implications of having that? Some women actually have an intolerance to it and it can either make birth way too rapid or it can also give a slightly allergic reaction to some women. It can be quite painful for them. But I think generally there's just the side effects of induction full stop to consider. And sometimes induction is really, really necessary. But you need to recognise that because it's an artificial start to labour, it does increase the risks of things like having a forceps delivery, having a Vontuze delivery. Definitely needing an epidural is more typical with an induction. And so ultimately, it might also increase the risk of a cesarean. In Lauren's situation where the baby is now moving much less than he did before, and they are advising that she has an induction, what's the reason behind that? Well, we know that active babies are healthy babies. It's a really reassuring sign if a baby is wriggling around and reacting to the uterus tightening. And so when a baby is quiet... 
we have to assume that there could be a problem. Sometimes it's actually just that the baby is having a chilled out day and there's always that occasion when somebody rushes into hospital, they sit down and wait to see a doctor and the baby starts jumping around. But it is so important to take it seriously because it is associated with an increase in stillbirth when babies stop moving. And the advice that we give now is exactly what Lauren did. So you don't wait at home hoping that the baby wakes up. You just go straight in for monitoring. And even if the monitoring is completely okay, if somebody goes in a second time with reduced movements, they will nearly always encourage induction that day because a woman's perception of her baby's movements is the most accurate thing that we have. And so, Lauren, you go back in to have your second dose of the pessary gel. Is that the right time? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And what happens after that? Yeah, it was in the evening. And, you know, the doctor basically looked at me and said, I'll, you know, see you in a couple hours. Like, it's going to work this time. And then I woke up with a lot of, a lot of pain. And yeah, it was different than I expected. I had expected it to be all in my front, but it was like sharp, sharp pains down my lower back. A question about that. Does it depend on the woman, whether you have pain in the front or the lower back? It can depend on the woman, but it can also depend on the baby's position. So if the baby is not looking the right way, if the baby's spine is towards your spine, that can make the contractions all in the back, can make them more powerful, more painful. So it really is better if the baby's back is at the front. So your baby may have been facing the wrong way at the beginning. And the end. (laughs) And the end, yeah. We'll get to that. (laughs) But yeah, so horrible, horrible pain, you know, and it's like sort of what I was saying. I was in the induction ward and I just heard all these women, you know, freaking out around me. And I was like, ah, like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like that. It's not going to feel like that for me. And then when it came, I mean, my husband described later that it looked like I was having an exorcism. Like I was just out of my mind. And it was like my contractions were every two minutes, extremely strong. And I think I dilated from something like two centimeters to eight centimeters within like an hour and a half. Oh, wow. Uh, Well, that sounds really fast. Very, very fast. Really fast. Horrible. And so they carted me in the side room. What's the name of the place you actually give the surgery room? Labor ward. Okay. Well, anyways, we're in the labor ward and so a room off to the side. And that's when, you know, a woman came in and she's like, well, how do you want to do this pain medication? She's like, let's, let's give you some gas and air. And then I took some gas and air. It just like, wasn't really doing it for me. Like it helped a little bit, but, but not really. And, and she seemed to really push me to only stick with gas and air. She's like, I think you're going to be fine with that. And then, you know, I, I insisted on epidural. And did she say anything about why she was really insistent on you only having gas and air? No, she didn't say why. It was just very clear that she had a preference, that she was against epidurals, which I think is a pretty mainstream thing, is that epidurals are, are bad. Yeah, Nairi, that's something that I have heard too, actually. What's the reason for that? I think that because an epidural can slow a straightforward labour down, and can increase the risk of further intervention. Some people try and avoid it. And it is obviously perfectly possible if you go into labour on your own and your baby's in a good position and it progresses well, you can manage with gas and air or just a TENS machine or even nothing at all. But when labour is artificially induced, 
you probably will need an epidural because you get these really strong contractions without the gentle buildup. It's shocking. And so having an epidural, if your labor is long, if the baby's in an awkward position, or if it's induced, is a good thing. But I think that the most important thing is that the woman herself makes the choice about pain relief. Because if you encourage somebody to have pain relief and they haven't asked for it, that can dent their confidence and make them worry that labour is going to get an awful lot worse. But by the same token, somebody shouldn't be encouraging somebody, as in Lauren's case, to have something else. If they want an epidural, they should be allowed to have one because you need to be able to look back on your birth without horrific memories, hopefully. And so I think women should make their own decisions about pain relief. They should be given the pros and cons of each method, but listened to because at the end of the day, everybody's body is different and women need to decide what their own tolerance level is at any one point. And so Lauren, you felt that you needed an epidural. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced. It's so incredibly painful, not yeah. to scare a listener. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was in this case, and I, I couldn't imagine going through with the whole experience without anything. Got the epidural and completely, I became, it was, everything was great after that. You know, yeah. I'd say the real downside is that you can't feel they had me start pushing. And so you have to imagine what it feels like to push without actually feeling the mm. pushing. So it can be a little bit you don't really know if you're actually doing anything or not. And so how long was it between you getting the epidural and then you being asked to push? Um, maybe 30 minutes. Oh, wow. And are there any downsides with giving an epidural so late? No. Not really, because a skilled anaesthetist can do it very quickly. I think if it's a second or a third baby, the risk in giving it late is that actually it doesn't start working in time and the baby's halfway out. And then afterwards, you've got heavy legs almost for no reason. But that isn't a risk with the first baby because most first babies take their time to come out. But what they will often do is once somebody having a first baby is fully dilated, they will allow some time to pass where the woman is not pushing just to allow gravity and the strong contractions to bring the baby down nice and low. They don't always have that luxury, so if in the process of monitoring the baby's heartbeat anything worries them, they will obviously move things along more quickly. But if they have the luxury of time, actually letting somebody rest with their epidural and let the baby move down lower is a good thing because it reduces the woman pushing for too long and stops exhaustion. So waiting is is often something that happens first. And I don't know why in Lauren's case it was just 30 minutes, because actually if a baby's not looking the right way, sometimes if you just leave a bit more time, some of that rotation occurs naturally. naturally. Yeah, so it started, we were in a side room, and then I think, is it called the theatre, is the actual room where you get the surgery? So I ended up having an episiotomy. They do do that often just in any delivery room. But it may be that because they knew your baby was facing to the side, they didn't know whether further intervention might be necessary. So sometimes if they can't deliver a baby in a straightforward way with one method, they will then escalate to the next and then they may even need to follow on through with the caesarean. So often they will take women into the theatre and they call it a trial of instrumental, where they try the least method 
And then if they need to switch to something else, they're in the right place. The woman has the good pain relief. There's an anaesthetist on hand. So it's just about doing it in a safe environment, really. So yeah, I pushed for maybe an hour or something like that and nothing mm. was happening and then you know they said Casper was sideways and so that was part of the problem is that kind of no matter how much I pushed he just sort of pushed a little and then came back is sort of how they explained it to me and then you know shortly after that they they wheeled me into the theater and there's maybe you know 10 people there and then we had an on-hand anesthetist um, there and then you know they said that I would have to have an episiotomy in order to to make this work and then to use a, a vacuum or a suction. And how did you feel about that? When they said that? Well, it's a little scary for sure, just because it's unknown. But I just thought, you know, these people know what they're doing. It felt very safe in general. It was a a very well-organized machine. You know, in general, it was a lot of women. There were only two men and eight women. And yeah, they had a whiteboard up there with all of the steps that they needed to take. And yeah, so I felt very safe. So I came in there and yeah, they put me on the bed, lifted my legs up and... I mean, I I couldn't see exactly what was going on, obviously, but she said that she was, yeah, making some sort of cut to make it easier and and kept instructing me to keep pushing as much as I could. And then he comes out. He came out, yes. Well, it's kind of funny because... uh, you know, he came out and you know how they say that, that the husband is supposed to recognize himself in the baby when they come out to create a bond. And and Michael explained that when he first saw the baby, it, it didn't look like him at all. Like it was this foreign foreign creature in general. I think, yeah, he was particularly dark, I, I think, <laughs> was the situation. And yeah, it was just, it's a crazy thing because you're imagining this baby in your stomach and then suddenly he's here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was very emotional and exciting. I mean, I'd had, I had thrown up right before. And so I was a little bit disoriented mm. from what I think from all of the medication I had been given. But yeah, it's, it's magical. And how long did you stay in the hospital for? Uh, one day. So I gave birth on the 24th and, and we left on the 25th. Out of there, they put me back in the, uh, after you have a baby area was completely packed. And mm. so I was actually put back into the induction ward, which was oh, okay. really a weird experience because we were yeah in this little room with our sweet baby and you know and all of these women around us were going into labor and one one woman in particular was having a really hard time down the hall and you know I'm just you know breastfeeding having a nice time with Casper and then I hear her and she's you know get me my fucking epidural (laughs) just like really really having a hard time angry with the nurses not getting what she needed but I found it kind of funny, it, you know, but maybe someone else might have thought that was not, <laughs> not the best way to bring your angel into the world. <laughs> so, yeah, but about, you know, they carted me out of the room to sort of rewind a little. They carted me out of the room and instantly Casper was able to breastfeed. He like instantly latched on. So that was that was quite nice. I didn't have to worry about that. So you then come home. How did you find the first few weeks because you're in London then, you have your family abroad. And you said you hadn't made so many friends because it was, everything was online and it was COVID. Mm-hmm. How did you find that initial period? Such a learning curve mm. in general. But luckily, actually, my, my husband's brother and his wife, they had come and locked down with us in the, in the flat that we were in. So, and, and she's a nurse and they're both in general, I mean, not a labor nurse or anything, but she was very supportive. So she was able to, to help me out so I could get some sleep. The first night, I remember he wouldn't stop crying. And I just like, me and my husband just looked at each other and we're like, what did we get ourselves into? I mean, it's crazy. You don't know how to console him. It's a a completely, it's (laughs) life-changing. Yeah. 
Well, thank you very much, Lauren. It's been a really, really nice story. You're um, welcome. Yeah, and thank you, Naiwi. You're welcome. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Anabotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.